Hi, this is Dean Coons, and you're listening to Monsters, Madness, and Magic. All right, folks, welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, Angelique and I, that's right, Angelique is back. Now, she did have some technical difficulties in the first half of the conversation, but you'll see her pop in. Anyway, Angelique and I chat with legendary author Dean Kuntz about the pitfalls of publishing, pets, balancing writing as a passion and a profession, and more. As always, thanks for listening. If you'd like to help the show grow, please leave us a review wherever you're listening to the podcast. And if you happen to be watching the video on YouTube, please like, comment, subscribe, and all that good stuff. Anyway, hope you've all had a happy new year thus far, and without further ado... Here you go. Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Okay, Dean, so uh, take us back in time. You're a youngster. Are you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all the above? I'm not a fort builder. Well, you might be right. I might have been all of the above now that I think of it. But I certainly was a book reader. I was escaped from a very, very bad house and a very bad family situation. But I used to build forts out of snow, sit in them and attack the neighborhood children with snowballs. I guess I was a troublemaker also. <laughs> Whereabouts did you grow up? A small town in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. It was a farm town, largely about 4,000 people. Very picturesque, but very tedious. It still is very picturesque, I think. So when you think back, you know, to authors and books that you grew up on, what comes to mind initially? Well, the first book I ever read on my own that I can remember and love was The Wind in the Willows by Kenneth Graham. That was the start of it. And then through high school until college, about the only thing I read was science fiction, Ray Bradbury, Robert Heinlein, Theodore Sturgeon, all those wonderful writers that period. And then once I got into college, there was all kinds of things you have to read. Most of them I didn't care for. So I started reading things that I wanted to read, which then became things like James M. Kane, Raymond Chandler, and I had moved on to a sort of different genre for a while. Ultimately, I became a, sort of a reader of all genres. Uh, it was nothing that I didn't find fascinating. So did you ever meet, have a chance to meet Ray Bradbury while he was alive? Yes, I did. We were at an event together and on stage together. It was very sweet, very kind. So what about formative films and TV shows that you grew up on? What comes to mind? Well, Frankenstein, mm. uh, the original. <laughs> uh, scared the hell out of me as a kid. <laughs> and I kept having a dream in which I was in that movie, being pursued way into adulthood. I had that dream repetitively. And then one day I said to myself, why cannot I shake this dream? And I reached, I could have been entirely wrong, but I think not. I reached the psychoanalytic conclusion that 
I was terrified because living with the Frankenstein monster was rather like living with my father. They were both irrational, both threatening, and you never knew what was about to happen next. And you know, when I decided that, I stopped having that dream. So that's why I think I'm probably a fairly decent psychoanalyst. Would you say that you're influenced commonly from dreams when it comes to writing ideas or anything like that? You ever had an idea come not, from a dream? Not, not often. People think so. But I had two books that I woke up and had had a dream and eventually compelled the idea for that book. But two out of all the books I've written is not a very majority source of ideas. And you've been pretty open about, you know, you've had a bad childhood. Was there anyone in your family that was creatively inclined? Do you think that's where your roots came from? Anyone that ever wrote or acted or anything? Nobody at all. But then many years passed. Uh, well, first of all, on my mother's deathbed, she had had a stroke, several, couldn't speak. And suddenly she sat up in bed and spoke. And she said, there's something you need to know about your father. He walked into the hospital room at that point, she said later, and then she died. And I never knew what she was about to tell me. But I do know that I was always called a miracle child, not because I was born with the halo, quite the opposite. My parents were told they could never have children. My father ran around with a lot of women, never as far as I've ever heard fathered another child. Many years passed, and my wife and I were sitting up on the Sunday in bed reading the Sunday paper. And she said, look at this. And she passed her article to me about Johns Hopkins University, which was not far from the part of Pennsylvania where we lived. They ran the first or some of the first experiments in artificial insemination. And at that time, they had no idea what would happen, whether babies would be born with abnormalities or whatnot. So they wanted to conduct these experiments quietly. And they chose two counties in Pennsylvania of women, women and men, who couldn't have children, and it was the husband's problem. And they also wanted families that were uneducated and poor. So because their studies showed them they would be the least likely to talk about this. So my wife said, look at this in the newspaper, all the donors were famous writers, artists, scientists. She became convinced I should go to John Hopkins and force them to reveal if I was one of those babies. I decided I would rather not know. As long as I don't know, maybe my father wasn't my father, and that's a comforting idea. As the moment I find out, what if I find out it was? There was too much downside, and I was happy to go on being ignorant. Uh, understandably so. So I wanted to ask you, what was your first pet's name? <laughs> <laughs> we had a little parakeet named Petey. Petey was cute, but it's hard to get attached to a parakeet as deeply as you do to a dog. We had two dogs on as a child, neither one fending at the time. First was a dog my father bought from somebody he thought would be a great hunting dog. Why he cared, I don't know, because he didn't hunt. But this dog, he called him Tiny. Tiny weighed 120 pounds. He was tied up <laughs> in the yard on a chain, which is the worst thing you can do with a dog. And when I would go out to play with him, he would be very exuberant. I was about five. One day, Tiny wrapped his chain around my neck 
not intentionally, he wasn't psychopathic, but was accidental, and he was strangled. He didn't know it. My mother looked out a window and came running, pulled the dog off, got the chain off my neck, and for a couple of weeks, I had little chain link bruises around here. It looked like a tattoo. It was way ahead of my time. Five. We got rid of Tiny that day, and I cried. Mm. Uh, then we had a little dog named Lucky. And Lucky wasn't lucky either. Lucky was constantly sick. And after about two weeks of throwing up, my mother said, I don't want this dog. And I ended up crying again. And no pets for about 50 years. <laughs> and then we got our first dog as a married couple. And that was Trixie. And it was the best decision we ever made, aside from getting married. So, Dean, how early on do you remember beginning to experiment writing your own maybe just maybe short stories or things like that i was about eight years old and i started writing stories on tablet paper staple the pages together cover the staples with black electrician's tape so nobody would prick their fingers and then i would peddle them to relatives for a nickel that seems like nothing but it was equivalent at least to 30 35 cents today and that was a big deal. And I saw quite a few of these until the relatives got together in an illegal consortium to agree that none of them would buy these anymore. And uh, that stopped me from publishing. But in a sense, I was author, publisher, agent, bookseller, all in one. Was it always your goal to become a writer? Is there a, an aha or eureka moment you can point to where you felt like you were taking that leap? I, it never crossed my mind after that. I think it was reading that Wind in the Willows at such a young age and being so attracted to it, and I wanted to tell stories. But it never occurred to me it was a way to make a life. And I was in college, and I had a story a professor submitted, a college writing competition run by the Atlantic Monthly, and the story won a prize. And suddenly, I could do no wrong in the English department. Every class, I started getting an A, whether I worked for it or not. And the reality is I never worked for it. I was a slacker. And I looked at that and I said, huh, there's a certain prestige that comes with this that really can get you ahead in life. So I decided uh, maybe there was something to this. And then that same story, all you got from the Atlantic Monthly was a little booklet and a little certificate. And there was a magazine called Readers and Writers. And it was a new magazine at that time. I submitted the story and they paid me $50 for it, which was uh, quite a lot of money in those days on paperback for 50 cents. That was probably the moment where something clicked in my head. Mm. And I said, I can do this thing I really enjoy and somebody might pay me for it. Now, it took a lot of years before anybody paid me anything that made it seem comfortable and a possibility for a lifetime of work. But I think that is the moment where it really started. What was the uh, premise of that story? I've reprinted it in Strange Highways. It was a story called The Kittens. And it's a very little story. It's not very long, but it's set on a farm. The little girl who is essentially the center of the story. The previous year when a litter of kittens were born, they all died. She never saw them then. She was told by her father they died. The next year, there's a new litter. And this time she discovers her father drowning 
in a bucket of water in the barn. She's just feels betrayed. Her parents lied to her. They killed the kittens and her mother has just had a baby. I let you figure out what happens from that point <laughs> on. Right. It was a little macabre story. Yeah. So, Dean, correct me if I'm wrong, but your first novel was StarQuest, and I believe it was published in 68. What were the initial seeds of inspiration for that story? Well, as I said, I read a lot of science fiction back then. That became kind of the, the natural genre for me to start in. So I was selling short stories fairly regularly, and not that they were any good, but at least they were good enough to sell. There was this uh, publishing company, Ace, I think they're still around, and they pay up, publish these things were called Ace Doubles. You got two shorter novels in one volume. Each side of the novel had a different cover. And I wrote StarQuest, and it was uh, it was purchased by them. And they said, we'll use it on Ace Doubles, but we normally pay 1500 but we're only going to be able to pay you 1250 because the novel is short. And we'll have to buy a longer novel on the other side. And we'll have to pay more for that. And I was just happy to get a first book published. And I said yes. And some years passed. And I was at a convention of writers. And I saw the writer who was on the other side of the Ace Double. And I went up and introduced myself. And I said, because of you, I got $250 less. And he said, oh, no, I got $250 less. We both have been told your novel is too short We'll have to pay the less. And that was all to save $500 by the publisher. And that was when I realized publishers, as nice as some of them can be, are never on your side. And they shouldn't. They have to make up nothing also. On that same subject, do you have a, a negative experience with a publishing company? Yes, I have. Someday I'm going to write about it. My current publisher has been by far the best I've ever dealt with. And it's a little Amazon company. They're doing very well for me. And there aren't any, isn't any of the sturm and drum you usually have in a publishing relationship. And I will so openly, because I think I've said this before, you know, all the different publishers I had over the years until I got here, when I got old enough to realize, or I won't say old enough, when I got experienced a lot, enough to realize what wasn't being done right. And I started for pressing for it to be done right. I was told again and again, oh, there is no such publishing program as that. There is no bookseller discount like that. And then right toward the end of my New York publishing career, I, disco I discovered I, was, I had always been correct. And there was this thing, it was called showrooming. And you would go into a store and they would have 40 copies of the book behind the cash register all face out. And over here, they would have a display bin. And over there would be another display bin. And back here would be books on the table. And I started going back over the years about everyone I dealt with who had told me there was no such thing. And I came down to the realization there had only ever been three people out of scores of people in my publishing career who hadn't lied. Mm. And that is a very profound and life-changing thing to realize. They were content making what they could make without exerting themselves. And as a consequence, we sold very well. We never built the way that they usually attempt to build writers. They usually give that to new writers. 
that they want to make their career. And if you've already sort of been made, they don't ever see the possibility of growing that career. So it was kind of a, an eye-opening thing for me. And I even had one publisher late in my career. She worked under an Uber publisher. So there were a lot of publishers at different events. One night she called me and said that I did not know. It's such a well-guarded secret. I did not know that what you were asking for is a real thing. But I went and found out, and it is, and you should have had it, and you didn't. And I can't get them to give it to you. As a consequence, they want me to lie to you, and I won't do it. And she quit. So that person and two others over all those years were kind enough to at least say you're right, and you're not going to get it which is much better than pretending it doesn't exist. Right. The new people I'm with have been as straight and above board as I ever could wish. And it's a great blessing. Would you say there's a there was a moment in your career where maybe publishers ushered you more towards the digital side of things versus print? Like, where does that stand now? New York has always been resistant to the digital. They've come around very reluctantly, and they still put a very high price on digital, generally speaking, $14.95, $15.95, whereas Amazon will sell it at $9.95. That's a great buy for the reader. You would think, well, that isn't the best idea for the writer, but you sell a great deal more at $9.99 than you did at $14.99. And the thing to always keep in mind is the cost, once you set up that digital book, once the publisher established so it can be downloaded, it's a relatively small investment, smaller than printing hundreds of thousands of copies. And once it's established, it costs next to nothing each time it's downloaded. So the profit margin is quite high. And it is a boon to the reader uh, to be given the break on that. And that is something that Amazon does. And I approve of it. So, Dean, a lot of young writers or maybe even experienced writers have uh, problems getting over that initial imposter syndrome that seems to come with it. Uh, is that something that you ever struggled with? Oh, my, yes. <laughs> More or less in the early days than at the moment where I started breaking out from a mid-list writer to a bestseller. And my publisher at that time, when we first started having paperback bestsellers that would sell a million paperbacks. I was told you're always going to be a paperback bestseller, but you're never going to be a hardcover bestseller. And we're not going to try to get achieve that because it's not possible. You're not that kind of writer. So I struggled quite a long time in the fame, a few years. And then when we started to achieve hardcover bestseller it was only because I pressed very hard and did things like say, well, I'm going to have to move to another house if we don't make an attempt at hardcover. The attempt was made, and then I've told this part of the story before. Over a few books, the numbers in hardcover grew. Usually slowly, the publisher would do 15, 5,000 copy printings on top of the first instead of really getting behind the book with momentum. When the first book I had ever hit number one, which was Midnight, my publisher called me up, because you know about 10 days in, uh, she called me up to say, I have great news. You're going to be number one on the New York Times. And before I could say, 
one excited word, she said, but don't get very excited about this. It'll never happen for you, Dan, because you're not the kind of writer who can be number one. And I was number one five times with that publisher. And every single time I was told this will never happen again. And at that point, I said, you know, I'm going to have to move to somewhere where they think it could happen again. So that sort of is, I think, what you're talking about. They look at you or certain people look at you and say, no, he is not worthy. Somebody said to me, it's like in other lines of work where somebody starts out as a secretary in the company and rises to vice president, but all kind of people never take him or her seriously because they started out as a secretary. And I think that's a pretty good analogy. Right. And I wanted to ask you, I think the first film adaption of your work was Demon Seed. So how did those initial talks go and were you happy with how it turned out? I was moderately happy with how it turned out. The cast were all excellent actors. The script was decent. It suffered from a lack of special effects, but in those days, it was at MGM. And we came out, or it was released, and it was supposed to get a pretty decent ad budget, and then it didn't get much of anything at all. And MGM said at the time to the producer, Herbie, I think, well, it's science fiction, and science fiction films get a very small audience. The very next year, I think it was Star Wars broke, and that sort of changed that it. What did your writing process look like early on? Were you a heavy outliner? Do you like to you know go with the flow, and has it changed over the years? I started outlining in the early days, and it came to Strangers, which was the first hardcover bestseller I had. It's got a very large cast, books quarter of a million words. I decided the outlining thing isn't working. I outline it, publisher sees the outline. I spend a year writing it, I deliver the book, and it's changed uh, somewhat. It's still the book that was the outline, but elements change. And the reaction from editors and publishers, well, this is all well and good, but we like the outline better. And I realized they see that outline and they get a book in their head and it's never gonna be the book you're right. It's never even going to be the book you had in your head when you wrote the outline. And so with Strangers, I just wrote it on spec. And it went so well without an outline that I have never outlined since. And I start with characters and a premise, and I see where the hell this thing goes. And it's much more fun that way. So do you treat it as a, maybe not outlining, but just writing in general? Do you schedule yourself maybe nine to five hours or? I get up at five in the morning and I'm at my desk by 6.30. I just have to walk the dog and have breakfast. I start at 6.30 and I work straight through the whole till dinner or till about five o'clock. Some days slightly earlier, I quit. And I do that at least six days a week. Now that sounds like a grueling schedule, but I actually love the process so much that yes, it's work, but it's also play. And now that I've reached a rather advanced age, I find that I don't know what else to do with myself. <laughs> if I'm not in there making these stories happen, I'm not all that happy. And so I get my evenings off and sometimes Sunday and that's all I really need. What would you say is like the typical turnaround for a novel? You start and then maybe you're done in three months, two months? 
these days I finish a novel of a hundred thousand words that were around there in about five months. Mm. Uh, sometimes it's six months. Uh, when I've written very long novels, like The Face or From the Corner of His Eye, those take about a year and are a little scarier. <laughs> you know, once you get that cast and that depth of themes, that you always wonder if you can tie all this together at the end since you have no outline. But five months focused, working 60 hours a week or more is, uh, is kind of what it takes for me. Just speaking uh, to other authors and such about inspiration, you know, it can be fickle. How do you keep the, the, the inspiration coming after all these years? I've never had a problem with that. I've never had a, any writer's block. I have occasionally had something like I'll get halfway through a novel and I'll stare at the page for a day or two and think, I'm not sure what that were to take this. And on just a couple of occasions, I have put that aside, started another novel, finished it, and then gone, and then went back to uh, the one I couldn't finish. It always finished then once I freed up the mind. I often say to human writers who want to know how they get past writer's block, I say to them, all writer's block is the same thing. It's self-doubt. And I have always had enormous self-doubt. I still do. And the way you get past it, in my experience, is you just rewrite it page by page until you cannot make that page any better. And you may think on past three, oh, that's as good as I can make it. But you will ultimately learn if you just keep forcing yourself back, you can always make it better. Then there comes a point whether it's better enough to do one more draft. But that was how I broke any momentary writer's block. I would get over the self-doubt by polishing the page so I thought, boy, that really sings. Mm-hmm. Then I go on to the next page. The doubt would start all over again, but I would go through the process. I've, I've learned of a few other writers who work that way. For many writers, they write a draft all the way through and then go back through the vision. I don't think I could do that. I, I have locked myself into this way of doing long ago, page by page. And it works. So at this point in a career, I'm not going to change that. So do you have a personal favorite film adaption of your works? We can have a nice long conversation about the one I would like to murder the people involved. (laughs) (laughs) But my favorites, uh, they come down to a very small list. I thought Stephen Sommers did a very credible job with Odd Thomas. Now, this tragedy there is... I read his original script because I had the power to make notes. And usually when you look at a script, you start making notes, it goes on for days. In Stephen's script, I had no notes. I thought it was absolutely perfect. It was written to be about a $35, $40 million budget. Stephen asked me to come into LA to go to a two-day event where people come from all over the world to invest in films that are going to be filmed or to buy the rights of films that have been just completed. And we did a dog and pony show for a couple of days. I really liked Steve, he was a great guy. He raised all the money he wanted and I won't go into what happened to it, but Steve doesn't know what happened to it. It certainly didn't end up in the film. It was siphoned away in process and he had a 
point at which he had a crew of like 150 in Santa Fe, the cast and everybody. And he was informed one morning, halfway through the picture, there is no more money. Steve was so well liked by everybody who worked with him that nobody left. He left them in Santa Fe, said, I'm gonna go try to raise the money to finish this. I might need a month. During that month, you're all gonna have to pay for your hotel, your food, and everything yourself. And it's a tribute to him as a human being that not one person left that crew or cast and waited. He came back not with all the money that he needed, but he came back with enough to finish it by rewriting the screenplay to make it simpler. And I always would miss the film he could have made, but he still made a fairly decent one. I think that's largely the only one. Right now we have, I think it's 19 properties in development. Wow. And they're with a lot of very good people. So I'm, I'm very hopeful that some of these will turn out well. I don't know, but I haven't heard about Steve in a long time. I think when that happened with Ob Thomas, he just said the hell with business and he left it. And he had been quite successful with the mummy yeah. and a number yeah. of things, but I just think he got tired of it because I haven't heard anything since. I have to ask now, Dean, because you got me curious. In your opinion, which was the most egregious one? <laughs> this is a little bit of the story, so... I'll tell it to you uh, as succinctly as I can. Uh, producers came to me about doing a TV series that would reimagine Dracula. And I said, you know, Dracula is reimagined about every four years. But nobody that I'm familiar with has ever reimagined Frankenstein. So let's do that. They said, yes, I wrote an hour-long script. It was placed in a cable network for a series and boiling it down, the agent in charge of the project gave it to a young director who had had one success. And meanwhile, the head of this uh, agency, Aaron Manuel, gave it to Mark Scorsese, who was looking for something to direct for TV. He had done documentaries, but he'd never done anything fiction with TV. And he liked the script and said, I'll do this. In the meantime, they had asked me to turn that one hour into a two-hour pilot, which I was busy doing. And then Martin Scorsese found out that they were talking to this young director about directing it. And Marty said, I would never take a job away from the young director. I still want to be involved, but rather just as a producer. So it fell into the hands of the young producer, or young director, which probably wasn't a good idea. But I still thought, we have an 800-pound gorilla in the room with Martin Scorsese. He's going to help get this thing through the right way. And I was very positive. And then one day, I discovered they had a writer writing behind me, totally unwriting what I had done, which isn't the writer's guild rule. I called them on it, and I backed out of the project, essentially. And when I saw what they produced, I said to my attorney, my name has to come off this. Well, I would have had three credits, uh, creative, writer, and executive producer. And I didn't want any credits on this thing. So we managed to get executive producer and writer off. 
but the studio or the network said, we won't take creator off. No one ever gets to take creator off. And we need that, your name on that, to sell this overseas. So we were struggling and thinking we're going to go to court. And then somebody in the Writers Guild knew what was going on and called my attorney and said, there is a little known rule that if the writer's view of the world is completely turned 180 degrees on his head, you can't, he can get his name off. It's called, what is it called now? It's been so long. It's aggressive removal of credit, something mm. like that. And it sounds like you're going with a weapon. <laughs> and uh, I, I said, well, my story had equal men and women characters as the two heroes. And the thing that they ended up with was misogynistic. It was racist. It was several things that were not what I had written. And I said, this blows up my worldview entirely. So I think we have a case. And in the end, we did. We got every credit removed. And in the end, I got this wonderful letter from Martin Scorsese saying, if I had directed, I would have shot your script word for word. I wouldn't have changed anything. But I started to find out what they were doing. And I didn't even really want to be involved as a producer. So that taught me that even with an 800-pound gorilla, there is no such thing. Knowing now that Frankenstein was your favorite your way of straddling sci-fi and horror makes a lot of sense now. Which do you prefer, the super scary or the more space science-y stuff? Well, there was a third genre. Yeah, the way I wrote Frank, I had science fiction in every edge. But the two elites were police detectives. And gradually, they uncover the fact that Frankenstein, the doctor, has managed to prolong his life and it's still alive, living in New Orleans, still doing crazy experiments, and that his creature is still alive. And so there was a police detective element to it as well. When I started mixing genres way, way back, publishers didn't like it. They didn't understand that now it's done all the time. It's a rare event. I won't say that Frankenstein was my favorite because they ended up taking my name off the product. But, well, I was talking about the 1931 movie being your favorite. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, after the something blew up, I did write five novels based on my screenplay. And I had a great time with them. I, I wanted to say, look, this is the way it could have been. And so I misunderstood your question. But you, you introduce a lot of really horrific elements into your, your work. My favorite of yours is The Bad Place. That one is twisted. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you. <laughs> I don't know where this stuff comes from, but uh, there was uh, an editor at the, that publishing house told me how disturbed the publisher was when she read the script after it was submitted, but not for the reasons you're talking about. She thought it went way too far out there in mixing genres. And and the fact that you're actually, for one, big, one scene, end up on an alien planet was drove her completely crazy and she wanted it out but if i'd taken it out none of the rest would have worked it was kind of the linchpin in the story now, that i would say is one of my favorites because oh there was a little story in that my agent at that time read it and called me up and said well i think they'll they'll like it 
but I've got to tell you, there's one element in this book that is genius. And so I got all puffed up and said, what is that? And she said, the scenes with the Down syndrome boy, from his point of view, are just wonderful. And they're, they're really genius. And I said, oh, you know, I loved writing those scenes so much that I considered writing an entire novel from the point of view of the Down syndrome character. And it was quiet on the agents. And then she said, there is such a thing as too much genius. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dean, what would you say is the best writing advice that you've received personally and who gave it to you? Oh, best advice I've received. Hmm. You know, I've never been asked that. I'm sort of trolling around in my memory. Take your time. <laughs> uh, you don't get a lot of great advice. You ask for it first and then you realize most of this isn't that good. And I have to stay away from it. I think maybe the best, probably an hour from now, I think of the brilliant advice that somebody gave. Right now, I know when I was struggling to break out into hardcover bestsellers, and I was coming up with ideas and running them by my agent at that time. And she was saying, no, I won't do it. No, that's not going to do it. And I finally said, what is it? What does it take in a book to get that larger audience? And she said, big. And I said, you mean very long? And she said, that can be part of it, but it's not necessary. She said, when I say big, it's on the themes, it's on the way it's written, and it's on the impact the characters have. You have to think of what she meant was strong, emotional, and intellectual impact. And if you can have that, you're going to break through. And Strangers, of course, in many ways, is a very emotional story. Uh, it's all these troubled people and trying to find their way to an understanding of what's happening to them. And then from that, I went to a shorter book, Lightning, which in its way is quite an emotional story. And after that came Watchers, which I have probably 20,000 letters from people telling me how they cried like a baby. <laughs> things in the book. So that advice was actually kind of right on target. Uh, you kind of need to think big, but that doesn't mean you write a book about the Titanic or it needs to be a quarter of a million words. It just means the issues you're dealing with should be big enough that people care about them. So Dean, right here I have a copy of The Bad Weather Friend. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you just about the idea for the book. How did this one come to you? Well, I've been watching some TV, and I don't watch a huge event, but I was seeing all these characters who are kind of reprobates or have serious criminal ideas in their minds, and they're the admirable leads of the shows. And I thought, wow, we're living in a time where nice guys are considered idiots, and uh, you have to have all these bad characteristics in many cases, to be considered truly, uh, well, an anti-hero. I thought, it's time for somebody to write a book about a nice guy, a really nice guy who everybody turns against. And so Benny in this book is a very nice guy and is another character in it. Spike tells him the key is to be, the best thing to be is nice. 
but don't be so nice that you're foolish. And that sort of became the basis for the character of Benny. And the character of Spike, I knew immediately, I knew that Benny was going to be a version of the story of Joe, that everything was going to go wrong in Benny's life. And he was going to have nowhere to turn. And so how does he solve all of this problem? Because he's got very powerful people lined up against him, and he doesn't even know who they are. And when the idea for Spike came into my mind, I got enormously excited. I began to laugh because I knew how amusing this story could turn out once Spike walked into it. And this is one of those novels like Life Expectancy that is as funny as it is suspenseful. Mm. And I I really enjoy writing this. And so that's sort of where that came from. It's, it, I would say it's one of my 10 favorite final books. And I believe that's coming out February 1st. Now, beyond the Bad Weather Friend, are you, are you already rolling on to the to the next deadline? <laughs> I have two novels delivered. One is called The Forest of Lost Souls, which is very serious. It has a couple of amusing side characters, but it's, it's a very threatening sort of novel. And then I finish one called Going Home in the Dark. Is suspense, but rather like the bad weather friend, in which uh, comedy has a very large element. In it. And it's a story of four friends from high school who are all nerds and bonded together for survival. And now they're 35, and three of them are quite a success. Well, all four are quite a success. Three have left the small town they grew up in. But when something bad happens to the fourth, they all come home. And what is going on is really strange. And I had great fun with that, too. Not one to another. There's always something more, thank God. The ideas keep coming. (laughs) What would you say are the necessary ingredients to a Dean Koontz story? It has to be that you want to keep turning the pages. Mm. I think that's true of all genres. And literary fiction, for me, is just another genre. I read that just as much as I read anything else. And the good literary fiction keeps you burning the pages. So that momentum is important. But the momentum comes from one issue, and that is suspense. Now, in certain novels, suspense is whether the character is going to live or die. But that's not the essential uh, in a story. Suspense is the key element of all our lives. We don't know what will happen to us later today, tomorrow, or next week. So we all live in a state of suspension, but we also live in a state of denial. And if a novel works, it will keep you turning the pages because you want to find out what's happened to those characters or going to. And then that leads you to the final conclusion of what is important is the characters. They are actually the most important thing, I think. You have to find the character, somebody who interests you and you want to know about. And then as things begin to happen to that character, you're compelled to find out where this leads. So when I'm writing, those are the three things I think about. Characters first, how gripping are they? How interesting, how eccentric? And then what is the situation they're in? And how dire can this be and dire in one way? Now, if I've got all that together in the book, I'll, well, it doesn't write itself, but 
it will write much more easily. Dean, this is something I like to ask everyone just because you never know. Uh, have you ever had an experience you would consider supernatural or paranormal? Yes. <laughs> I've had several. I'm not going to tell you what they were because uh, what I've said is I'm going to wait until I'm old enough that I don't care if people think I'm an idiot. <laughs> uh, and I still care a little about whether they think I'm an idiot. But I will say this. I had a series all within about six months of strangest experiences. And I never even mentioned them to my wife. And then one night, something happened that I saw and she saw as well. And she reacted to it as the moment I did. And I realized I'm not out of my mind. Uh, or if I am, we're both out. Of <laughs> and then, Is it better relief? Is, yeah, <laughs> company. I always like company even in matter. We started to talk and found out some of these same things we both had been experiencing and neither one willing to mention to the other. So someday I'm going to write about them because they were so different and so interesting that I keep trying to figure out things they all might have been. And I would like to have a better handle on that before I write about it. Looking forward to those. Well, Dean, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Just to put a bow on this here, just uh, tell folks what's on the horizon for you. Well, the two books I mentioned are coming out, the various films that development, death because I'm of a certain age. <laughs> but I hope that's still 10 or 15 or 20 years away. It just, life goes on in much the same fashion. I get up. I go to work, I play with the dog, I have dinner with my wife, we spend the evening together, I get up, go to work, that's that's it. And uh, as long as that can keep going on, I'm happy. Well said. Thank you so much. Thank you. you were both asking me for sympathy. So you have a great care. rest of your day. Looking forward to what you have in the future. Okay, thank All you. Bye-bye. Right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, folks, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Dean. As always, thank you for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. Ha, 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 ha